Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Willie McNabb, Head of Children's Football at Celtic Football Club. Willie, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Connor. I appreciate the invite and um, looking forward to chatting with you over the next wee while. Pleasure is all mine. Willie, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, what was your earliest football memory? Oh, earliest football memory? Um, probably going to watch my brother playing football. Um, my brother is, is kind of 10 years older than me. Um, and kind of later on in life, we used to have a bit of friendly rivalry of who was the best football player and who was the best looking football player and stuff like that as well. So I remember going and watching my brother. He, he was playing with a, a local team here called Airdrie, um, who are kind of playing in, I think it was maybe the, the Premiership or the Old Division 1 at the time. And I remember going watching him. Um, first of all, he was playing for the reserve team. And, and it was a stadium called Broomfield, which was a proper old school stadium. Um, and I remember going and watching them. They played a reserve game against Hearts. Um, and I remember watching my brother playing. And at that time, I was, I can't even remember what age I was, maybe about seven or eight or something like that. Um, and kind of growing up and always wanting to be a football player. And um, my brother was actually really good. He was a kind of left back, left side midfield player. I remember going watching him. And, and actually, it ended up when I was a really young kid. I, I live in a place called, or brought up in a place called Coat Bridge, um, which is a just kind of small town outside of Glasgow. And kind of Airdrie is like the, the next town over, so it was a kind of like local team. And, and I remember as a young kid going and watching my brother and then started kind of following Airdrie when I was a really, really young kid. Um, obviously, I always had that kind of Celtic connection because my, my brother and my dad were big Celtic fans. But after seeing my brother play for Airdrie, um, and then he started to take me to some of the games for, for Airdrie. Um, Airdrie, for anybody listening who knows them, they were like a very, very good cup team years and years ago. In like uh, 1992, they, they qualified for the, I think it was a cup winners cup back then, and they played Sparta Prague. And Airdrie and guys like Pavel Nedved and those types of guys were playing at that time. I think it was in 1992. So I was about seven or eight at the time. And it was mental seeing these guys who Pavel Nedved become an unbelievable player. He was really young at the time coming to a little place just outside of Glasgow to play football in this old school stadium. So that was probably my earliest memory of football because I was going watching my brother play um, for the kind of local team and that kind of gave me the bug to kind of want to, to become a, a football player, really. It's amazing, really. Like, I can't begin to imagine how passionate as a young lad you must have been for the game of football, Willie, because I've had many guests on the show, nearly totaling 80 at this stage, but none have been like yourself in terms of how young they began their coaching journey. I've down here in my notes and in my research, you began your coaching journey at the age of 16. Yeah, and yeah. you began your adult coaching career, coaching a reserve team at the age of 18. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That was um, kind of after I left school or just before I left school, Connor. Um, I think every young guy wants to be a football player or be involved in football. And I was not bad. I wasn't the greatest footballer. Again, I signed for another local team called Albion Rovers, who are like the kind of rivals of Airdrie, just on a kind of slightly smaller scale, although they probably wouldn't like me saying that. Um, and, and, I, and I signed there at 16. I literally left school on the Friday and, and started pre-season on the Saturday, which was like a, 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 my mind exploded kind of going into that environment. But just before I left school, <clears throat> I turned 16 in the January and, and we did a, a, a kind of introduction to, to coaching called the Early Touchy Certificate through the Scottish FA. And... Uh, 
I was still in sort of fifth year at, at high school at the time <clears throat> and, and really enjoyed it. Um, something that I, I, I kind of quite liked, enjoyed working with players. During that time, I started taking like the, the, the first year, second year football team at high school as well. And then when I went full-time coaching, sorry, playing, I quickly realised that I'm not going to hit the heights here of, of, of being a top player who's going to earn thousands and millions of pounds. It's literally like 50 quid a week you're earning. You're almost doing it for the, the love of the game. And, and just when I signed in the, the sort of June, July of, of I think it was 2000, um, I decided I wanted to get into the, the kind of coaching side of it. So just started kind of working my way through all the different courses that the Scottish FA had on locally. And while I was at Albion Rovers, was working with the really younger kids then, like the seven, eight, nine-year-olds, um, while doing a, a sort of part-time coaching role with the Scottish FA, working in schools and visiting, remember even visiting nurseries to work with the little mini-kickers and, and going to high schools and, and working with the, the players. So I was really lucky I was getting a broad spectrum of kind of even working with like five-year-olds, working with kind of 14, 15-year-olds at Albion Rovers and kind of did that for a couple of years. And, and I always remember it was... Um, we, we, we came into to training while well, there was a game one night. Um, I was I managed to get into the reserve team quite young. I was around about 16 when I got into the, the reserve team. And this was maybe about two years later. Not quite made it to the first team. Was deciding probably to take a little step back and maybe go into the junior game, they call it, here in Scotland, where it's still a very good level, but not full time and start to concentrate more on the coaching. Um, and I remember coming in, it was a reserve game. Um, Albion Rovers were playing Queen of the South, I think it was. And I remember walking in and it was the, the manager was Kevin McAllister at the time. Kevin McAllister used to play with Falkirk, played with Chelsea as well, like a brilliant player. And I remember saying to me, um, can you take the team tonight? And it was like, okay. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden I was standing in front of the players in the, in the changing room and I had guys who were double my age, who were playing in this game. And and it was the, the one and only time probably I've been really, really nervous as a coach. I don't usually get nervous, but all of a sudden, and I, and, and I, I remembered a quote by, I think it was Jose Mourinho, who said, put yourself into situations where you feel uncomfortable, because when that situation arises again, you know how to deal with it. And I thought, this is, this is my moment of... Ultimately, you're, you're kind of shitting yourself a little bit, but you're you're really, really going to 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 learn from this moment. And it was amazing um, having to speak in front of these kind of well-experienced players. And we actually won the game 1-0. A guy called Mark Yardley scored the winning goal. It was a 30-yard free kick. Mark Yardley was a big striker. He played with um, a lot of premiership clubs back here in Scotland. And I always remember that. And then um, they asked me to, to take the squad. Our next game was against St. Mirren. And the manager was a guy called Mixu Patalainen, um, who became the Hibernian first team manager. Uh, and then my third game was against Airdrie, and the manager was Owen Coyle at the time. So it was it was amazing. I played these sort of three games, um, and I was up against these unbelievable like guys like Owen Coyle, Mixu Patalainen, had maybe stopped playing by that time and were maybe taking their early steps in the management side of it. But when you look at what they two have went on to achieve in the, in the men's game, has been excellent. So when I look back on it, it's quite surreal. Um, and it actually set me up really nicely for, for something that happened at Celtic. Um, sorry, Connor, I like to go off on little tangents at times. Um, I, I remember Celtic were playing Fenerbahce in the, I think it was the Europa League. It was one of Kieran Tierney's first very European games. I remember he was playing against Robin Van Persie. Um, 
in that game. And I think maybe even Nani was playing for, for Fenerbahce. And I got a phone call on the way back home um, from the, the head of youth um, at Celtic, Chris McCart, asking if me and the, the other coach, Greg Robertson, who we were working with the U16s at the time, if we could come into the training centre the next morning. We went in um, and he said to us, listen guys, I'd like you to take the, the reserve team um, for, for a training session. And we were like, the reserve team manager was off for a few days. And again, it took me back to all those years ago at Albion Rovers and like fast forward, I think maybe at that point in time, it was like 10, 12 years later, you're thrust into this, but obviously at a much bigger level. Um, at that point, it was guys like, who were just kind of breaking through, like Mikey Johnson, Anthony Ralston. Um, there was a guy called Dirk Borichter, who was in the squad at the time as well, who we'd just signed from Ajax, who'd just scored against Real Madrid in the Bernabeu in the, the Champions League. So again, being in that environment when you're working with these types of players, but having known like Mikey Johnson and Ralston since we were like seven or eight years old, it, it was a different feeling that you had. But I, I actually drew on all those experiences. Um, and it was only one session. It was only one session that I ever worked with them for and myself and Greg, and it was another amazing experience. So so yeah, um, I think working with even three and four-year-olds at mini kickers to then two, three years later to be working with um, reserve team players and everything in between kind of gave me that more rounded approach of maybe kind of approaching my own development as a, as a coach as well moving forward. I think that's quite cool, Willie, that you can, you know, get that back into the memory and speak about it with such clarity and detail and be so appreciative about it because you're a guy that's been in the industry for 20 plus years now with hardly any brief hiatuses, not to mention. But, like, there's a true appreciation of cutting your teeth at that level. And I think for me, nowadays, when we look at the fast-paced modern era, which we'll speak about later on, it's, it's really there that we're kind of falling short, is it? That inability of us as coaches to accurately reflect on past experiences. I think that's important. I think I'm actually doing a, a, a master's um, degree at the moment, um, which is, again, something I'm probably going to get a bit more detail later on. But um, I think us naturally as coaches, we're quite reflective people at times. I think you're always critiquing yourself, like reflecting for action and action and, and kind of after the action as well when it happens. And I think that becomes so important because when I reflect back to when it's amazing when I say a young coach, I, I still think myself as a young coach. I'm still in my 30s. And um, although it's weird to hear you saying like, been in it for 22 years kind of coaching but you're always learning you're always learning new things and um being inquisitive as a coach as well is so so important as well but i think that re the reflective part on it corner is, is huge even when i think back to when working with as i said the three and four year olds at mini kickers is it something i could do now i, I believe i probably still could but a very small a very small level I, I couldn't do it day in day out week in week out like i used to do um i think you then start to find your, your niche as a coach in an area. But I think working with um, the younger ones really helped me because it helped me appreciate kind of the, the love of football that kids just have for it. These kids, they're just running about, they're jumping about to music and they're playing with balloons and, and all of a sudden you start to work with the younger, the older kids and you're starting to get a, a little bit better understanding of the game and then you start to work with the older ones who really see it as a as a possible profession 
and then you work with the guys who is their actual profession as well. So you obviously need to change as you go about those those areas. And I didn't want to come in and say, I, I must have had probably when I was younger, you always think, yeah, I want to be a, a manager. I want to be a top manager. And then as I started to go about my, my career, I thought I really love kind of getting to know players, getting to know what makes them tick and, and then finding the, 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 those little areas where you maybe really excel, whether that's youth football, recreational football, professional football, the very, very elite high end of it. Um, but I think going through all that corner really helped me and, and it allowed me to experience it all, to maybe say, okay, this is where I've maybe got a lot of strengths. This is maybe where I've got some weaknesses. Here's maybe where I could see myself developing best. Um, I, I know a lot of guys who maybe have just parachuted straight into coaching at adult level or youth level because they can't talk to three and four-year-olds. And it's amazing. These guys are maybe being professional football players who have played in front of 60,000 people and played at the highest level. But when they've got a group of eight five-year-olds in front of them, it's like, what do I do? And again, being put in those types of situations. Um, likewise, I could have went out in front of 60,000 people and, and kicked a football about because that takes a certain type of mentality. So it, it, it's interesting to, to see that. But um, I think that's one thing over the last few years about certainly the, the kind of reflective part and always say to young coaches who are always, and that's a great piece of advice that I get given um, from a guy called Jimmy Lindsay, who was my, my coach, Albion Rovers. He would say, don't always chase the dream. Don't always try to go and chase the dream and chase the next part of it. He says, just get your head down and work hard and things will all happen for you. And when I speak to young coaches now, I always say that to them, don't be too, don't be too quick to get there because if I, if I stand here just now and step back and say, okay, what was I doing five years ago? And then when I can see what I was doing five years ago to now, it's like, wow, that's amazing. So I can say that um, five years ago, I was kind of just cutting my teeth in the, the international department. Since then, I've travelled across the world, delivering coach education. Um, I've managed to work with players who have now played in the Champions League. I'm now head of children's programme at Celtic. I'm just about to finish a master's degree. Even in your own life, your, maybe, uh, your personal life, you've moved into a, a different house you've got a different car, you've got a different, whatever it may be. And it's when you step back and look at those five years, I think that's important. And then when you actually see how far that you've come and say, we'll be excited for what can happen in the next five years as well. So I think, yeah, my experience across those different age groups really helped me. Um, my own personal reflection, not just on a micro level of we always reflect and critique our own sessions, but actually stepping back and reflecting on it as a whole and actually seeing what you've achieved over a, a fairly short period of time. It's amazing what you can learn, you know, with that little bit of hindsight, really, Willie. But, you know, at the time, you know, unbeknownst to yourself, you were really cutting your teeth and was shaping up to be an unbelievable apprenticeship because it would lead to move later years on to Celtic. Now, take us through those early years at Celtic. It was actually... Um... I remember being at Albion Rovers and, and we had a, a few lads who did really, really well at the younger age groups who Celtic had kind of asked to go to their programme. And I was always of the opinion that if we can give kids a, a platform to go and work at a club like Celtic, then great, we're doing something really well. And someone actually said to me, um, they said, Billy, they're going to stop coming for the players and just come for the coach instead. And I thought, no chance. Um, again, as I said, growing up, being a Celtic fan, um, I always remember I'd left Albion Rovers um, and I'd went to Hearts. So I'd been at Hearts for about a season or, or just under a season and we, and we played Celtic one day. Um, 
And I remember after the game, a guy called Martin Miller, who actually used to be the head of children's, had taken over from Martin a few years ago. A brilliant guy, brilliant coach, who asked to speak to me after the game. And I thought it was to, to have a go at me because we were having a bit of a ding-dong at the side of the pitch. Um, like the ball was going miles off the pitch and I was hiding the footballs because we were winning the game and stuff like that as well. And uh, I thought he was going to have a little bit of a go at me. But um, we, we had a chat after the game and he offered me a job at Celtic. Well, offered me a, he offered me a chance to come in and speak to him. Um, so I went into Celtic Park. It was the very first time I'd actually been through the front doors at Celtic Park. Do you know, you're talking about having a vivid memory. I can always remember what I was wearing that day. <clears throat> I had I'd kind of sort of spiky hair when I was younger. Um, I wore a, a sort of pink check shirt and sort of washed out jeans. Remember, this is early 2000s, Connor. Don't, don't critique my style here. I always remember what I was wearing. I walked through the front door and I walked up. Who's the first person that I meet? Tommy Burns, who absolute legend of the club, former player, former manager. And he took me up the stairs. And as you go up the stairs at Celtic Park, there's a, another set of stairs that sort of take you into the director's box and out onto the pitch. He said, just up those stairs, son. We're meeting in a little room up there. Up you go. So I've kind of walked up and... <coughs> I'm standing there, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it in Celtic Park and there's nobody in the place and I'm like, I'm just staring around and it felt like 10 minutes, but I'm sure it was only 10 seconds. And then Tommy said, oh, well, I'm really sorry. It's this room here we're in. So right away, psycho psychologically, he had me. He had me. I was, I was coming to Celtic no matter what he said to me. And he took me down in a little room called the Seville Suite. I sat there and I met him and Martin. Um, to this day, I still cannot remember what they said to me because I was just there and saying, that's Tommy Burns. Tommy Burns is speaking to me. Um, I'd, all I know at the end of it, they offered me two jobs, which was um, to run the Central Scotland Development Centre and also come in and work with their U11s um, sort of academy team. And then from there, left Hearts, loved my time at Hearts, um, came to Celtic and, and yeah, I was, I was ended up working in the development centre for almost 12 12 to 14 years at the development centre. Um, but um, even while I was taking the U17s at Celtic, I was still coaching the under sevens as well. So it was amazing. I loved the development centre. It was one session a week and I loved being in that. But yeah, the first couple of years I worked with the U11s then I moved to U12s within the junior academy for the first sort of year and a half, two years, and then moved to U13s. <coughs> and I stayed at U13s for... A long time, maybe about seven or eight years, because I really enjoyed working with that age group because it was the transitional part where they were coming out of our junior academy, which is your sort of U12s down, into our intermediate academy, which is U13s to sort of U16s, U17s. And it was the U13s was sort of bridging that gap. So moving them up into a different section of the academy, moving from seven aside to 11 aside football. And because I'd worked with the younger kids for a few years, it was, it was a good thing to help the transition of the players. And then uh, we were working with the, the 2002 squad when they were U13s. Um, again, me, myself and, and Greg Robertson. And then we actually got the opportunity to take them from U13s all the way to U18s. So we worked with them every year. When we got to U17s, they moved full-time and Greg worked with them. And then I stayed with the, the U17s. Actually, I, I was just watching a YouTube clip and I sent it to Greg yesterday, believe it or not. We played a tournament over at St. Kevin's um, in Dublin, um, the Kevin's Cup. 
and we were playing uh, Benfica and Deportivo, and, and it was guys in the team like Owen Moffat, Adam Montgomery, who have just they appeared for the first team this year, uh, Aaron Hickey, who's now playing in Serie A with, with Bologna, and uh, Karamoko Dembele, who was in that team as well. And it was brilliant to see those kids, and then you can see that little pathway for them all that time. So, so yeah, my early years involved kind of working in the development centres at Celtic and with the sort of U11s and U12s. But at the same time, I was working with the Scottish FA. So I was a, what was classed as a, an assistant football development officer. So it was funded by the local council. So that allowed me a loophole that I wasn't fully employed by the Scottish FA so that I could work with a club. Because back then, if you worked for the FA, you couldn't work for a club, which was a bit baffling at times, but they've now since changed that. So I would work during the day, um, so I'd maybe see more administrative side of things. So managing staff, managing programmes, putting things together, working with budgets, etc. Um, and then kind of coaching in the evenings with, with Celtic. So I was probably um, maybe about 21, 22 at the time when I got that move. So I'd probably been coaching about six years by the time I got the, the chance to move over to Celtic. So not an overnight thing. Had to work extremely hard to get there of working at Albion Rovers. Then I moved to Hibs for six months. And then I was at Hearts for one year before making that that kind of step across to, into Celtic. Um, but having the best of both worlds with the Scottish FA stuff and being on the field at night time. So I was very fortunate in that way. Don't get me wrong, working every hour minute under the sun, but getting so much experience at the same time. Yeah, and there's no substitute for the experience. And it seems as though, you know, over time, Willie, you made those roles your, your own, really, because it's only in the last few years you were appointed head of children's football at Celtic Football Club. I mean, what does that role tailor? What does it encompass? I'd imagine there's a lot less probably on-pitch responsibility that you were usually accustomed to. <coughs> you know, it's it's funny that it was it was three years ago I was appointed into the role, Connor. Um, and so that means it took me almost 20 years to get a proper full-time gig in football. So again, it wasn't a, a, an overnight thing. Um, that was 20 years of working with part-time in clubs, working with the Scottish FA. I then came back to Celtic and it was the week that we beat Barcelona, 2012. I always remember going to the game and that was the, the, the week that I started back. I became the sort of head of the international programme. So I was technically full-time at the club, but not a full-time coaching role. So I was doing a lot of travel in the world, doing a lot of commercial business, doing a lot of coach education, um, but not quite as what you would say, total full-time coaching. So <clears throat> three years ago, just before the sort of um, the pandemic kicked off, it was sort of December 2019, January 2020, got the full-time role in at Celtic um, Children's Programme, which is basically sort of U13s slash U12s all the way down. So we have squads at U13, U12, U11, U10, U9 and U8. And then we have three development centres across Scotland. So there's a big remit of like five, six teams plus, plus three uh, development centres. We have around sort of 12 part-time members of staff. So it's basically an all-encompassing role. I, I still coach as well. Um, that's my passion. I love being out in the field. So I, I assist the U13s. So there's a lad in there, Jose Romero, who takes the U13s. And I am his assistant, um, but it still allows me to get out in the pitch. So I'll, I'll coach three times per week 
out in the evening, um, as well as kind of helping support other coaches and other squads in terms of building a game model, building uh, support initiatives, making sure that's linking back to the club's philosophy, uh, linking with the recruitment team on talent development, talent identification, working with all the different ologies at the club, um, psychologists, athletic development department, etc. So it's, it's another area where I was always really passionate about developing players, but I think this role allows you to develop so much more. So being able to help people, so help players, help coaches, and not for one minute corner, I'm saying that I know absolutely everything because I don't, but being able to put support mechanisms that can maybe help another coach realise their ambitions in the game or or help put a programme in place to support a player's development that's potentially going to play in the Champions League um, further down the line. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a unique role where the space that we're in as well, um, we, we've got so much different formats of playing football. So we've got 4v4, 5v5, 7v7, 9v9, and sometimes 11v11, not all the time. You touch on it a little bit. So whereas when they move on to the Intermediate Academy, they play 11v11 for the rest of it. So the development space that we're in, we've got to take all these different factors in. So that's been a brilliant thing for me. And I've, I've really enjoyed putting something together that's pretty cool, pretty robust in terms of developing individual players within a team context, but working with staff and, and probably looking at me, it, what am I like as a leader? Um, what are my leadership qualities like? What are areas that I need to become better at as well? So probably bang on corner, I think when you take over a role like this, it becomes less about what you do in the pitch and a wee bit more about what you're doing off it. But the stuff on the pitch is where the magic happens still. So I, I, I see that's where one of my strengths lies. So actually being on the pitch and, and trying to pass on a bit of knowledge and working with coaches as, as well has been, has been really important for me. So although as a, a full-time role, a sort of more management role, a leadership role, still getting that little bit of coaching on the pitch as well, which is still important for me. Um, but I do it in a, an assistant capacity. So it can probably be quite a strange one for the coach who works with me because technically he's got his the head of the department working with him, but I'm his assistant. But again, that allows me to give him that autonomy to go, you know what, go and, go and do what you do. And I'm here to support you, offer that wee bit of guidance. So it's been actually quite good for me. I don't need to get too involved in it. So where I can still take that step back, still coach the youth their teams, but have a kind of broader scope across all the different other age groups. And that's a sign of a healthy environment right there, if I've ever heard one. Um, but, you know, getting back to the start, something which you touched upon, the more and more experience you have in the game, Willie, you said something about you see the game more as a function of relationships. And I know what you guys advocate at Celtic is that holistic player development approach where you're not only developing better footballers, but also better people. What does this look like in practice? So, so for me, Connor, it comes down to two things, environment and relationships. So whenever I'm trying to build a, a programme or even working with an individual team, those are the two key things. Because if you don't get your environment right, then nothing's going to flourish in that. So if you're a gardener and you don't have the, the right soil, the right tools to develop those plants or that those vegetables, nothing's going to happen. So it's the same in football. So you create that right environment, get the correct people in there that are going to support and nurture that. And then that organically comes into the building the relationships. 
So I think for me, the, the relationships that you build with your, your own individual players, the relationships that you can build with your other staff members, that becomes key. And that's before you even talk about the technical, tactical stuff. Because I always look at, um, if you think about players who have ever worked with Pep Guardiola, Mourinho, Sir Alex Ferguson, Klopp, they all say the same thing about how good they were with them. They never turn around and say, oh, by the way, Pep Guardiola's got this shooting drill that's just absolutely unreal. I used to love doing it every day. No, he turns around and says, it's how he made me feel. It's how he used to speak to me. And, and Brendan Rodgers was very much like that when he spoke to us in the, the academy and was at Celtic. He mentioned about um, building relationships with players and how you could see that on the pitch, how much more that he got out of his, of his players. So in, in terms of creating that environment, for me, you need to you need to walk the talk. It's about your actions matching your beliefs, in my opinion. So a lot of people will say something, but they'll actually do something else. That's what I'm actually researching just now for my master's degree, is what coaches say and do at training. Do they actually do that in games? So it's easy to talk about that stuff. So you're saying to your guys, listen, we're in a develop, we're in a process-driven, that's our goal, we're process-driven and our goal we're not outcome-driven. Outcome-driven, i.e. winning games, you've got very little control over that, but you've got massive control over your processes. So don't be fixated on the outcome, i.e. winning games at 11s, 12s, 13s. Do we want to win games? Yes, we do. Do the players want to win games? Yes, they do. Do we want to create an environment where it's competitive and they want to win? Yes, but not at the detriment of the process goals. So identifying things like this sounds really, really daft, right? And really simple. But what we do now at, at, at the Junior Academy, <coughs> we say to the parents, drop the kids off from 5.30. Training doesn't start to 6pm, but from 5.30 to 6pm, they can come down and play street football. So the coaches come down, we set up our session on the pitch, the kids pile down, and for 30 minutes, they can do what they want. Generally, and I say to the coaches, no structure, don't set anything up, don't coach them, I says, what you can do is take part in the street football. Go and take part, because we all played street football when we were younger. And it was funny, the first couple of times we, we set it up, some of the coaches are like, oh, maybe we should set something up here and set something. I said, no, don't. I says, because they're in their house, they're structured. When they go to school, they get structure. When they're coming here, they get structure. So see, for half an hour, let's let them just be kids. And honestly, Connor, you should see how many kids turn up at 5.30. It's literally like the bingos just come out, all these kids just come belting down to the pitch. And, and we, we bought them um, like big traffic cones you get at the side of the road. We bought them, we bought big bins and stuff like that. So the kids use the traffic cones to make um, little targets. They, they actually, we bought some tape. They tape the bin to the, the goal and they try and hit top bins. Um, they use the the traffic cones for heady tennis. These are games that we used to play, like long shooty, cuppy doubles, like World Cup doubles, all that stuff. But we encourage the U10s to play with the U13s, for example. So when you come down, you'll see the kids, and they might even just be practicing penalties, free kicks, crossbar challenge. But I saw a kid, I saw a 10-year-old kid chase a U13 all over the pitch because he was trying to get the ball off him because he wanted to beat him in this game. And it just creates, and before you know it, people are laughing, people are joking. 
Uh, one of the kids was just about to score a goal and the little under 10 clipped his heels, so he fell over, stole the ball off him and scored. And they're all laughing and having a joke. And that was one way of creating that environment. <clears throat> but also, we're, I was really keen on creating a model environment where I think sometimes, I, I don't see individual teams in the junior academy corner. I see a group of people and that's coaches and players all pushing towards one vision. So on one evening on a Wednesday, uh, we have our U10s, 11s, 12s and 13s with four squads in training. And in the past, sometimes what would happen is the coach would go and work with their group, they would go and work away, which is fine. She says, I want to bring everybody together. So what we do now is um, we do a position-specific evening. Now, we know that players will change positions as they go along in their age groups, but what we do is we have defenders, centre-mids, wide players and strikers, four areas of the pitch, four coaches, and we mix the players. So you've probably got anywhere between 10 and maybe 14, 15 players in each group, but from U10s all the way through to U13s. So we create a model group. So we have our U13 striker who's helping the U10 striker. The U10 striker is watching the U13 striker, looking at his habits, looking at how hard he's working, the different types of finishes. And you almost create that environment where they're learning from each other. And then when they go into the games, they talk to them. When they meet them outside of football, they know who they are. So when they're up at the changing room or in the car park, they're high-fiving each other, they're asking how each other are. But also the U13 coach, like Jose, gets to work with the U10 players. And the U10's coach gets to work with U12 players, for example. So you start to create a, a real learning environment. I must admit, the environment that was there before I took over um, was excellent. Um, it needed just a little tweak on some stuff, but the staff that we have there are exceptional, exceptional people. And we want kids and parents when they come in is just to fall in love with the environment and fall in love with the coach. Yeah, we've got a, a full sort of game model, game principle philosophy of um, how we want to, to run things. And philosophy is an interesting thing as well, Cora, that's another tangent that you could easily go off of as well, that for me, the philosophy is not your X's and O's and what you're doing in your pitch. Your philosophy is your beliefs and your values of your bedrock of what you do and how we build upon that as well. So saying, here's our values of commitment, respect, um, integrity. You have to go and show these as a coach and show these as a player. So we also have a thing called Player of the Week where we create little FIFA cards for the players. Uh, they create a little emoji. So each player has got their own FIFA card. And then at the end of the week, the players get to vote for their player of the week. So it's not a coach-driven initiative, but the criteria is based on values. So who's the hardest working player? Who shows the most respect to their teammates? Who helps around the place? And also um, who helps other players on the Wednesday night? So we've actually had players from the U13s vote for players from other teams. So, and then what we do is we have a newsletter every week. We put that player of the week and we celebrate that success. So we say, that's not the best player. That's not saying, oh, you're a magnificent player. We're actually saying, no, you're getting rewarded for your hard work and effort. So it goes back to that growth mindset um, of this is how we do things here. So I could talk for hours on that, but for me, if you had to drill down to it, it's your environment you create and the relationships that you build with your players and your parents. Absolutely brilliant. I'm scribbling notes here like a maniac, Willie. And it's interesting too, the environment in many ways is doing the learning for you or the teaching for you. And I always bring it back to one quote from Paco Cerulio, 
where he says football is a game of interactions, not actions. And with that sentence in mind, I suppose that links into my next point where I heard you discuss in a previous podcast before, you don't believe in the word resilient. You believe in the word robust and creating robust players. What does that mean? I think it's players that can overcome challenge. Connor, it's, it's a player who can be robust in the physical sense, who is, is willing to go and... I was, I was watching our uh, U9s and U10s play this morning before coming on this podcast and just looking at me guys and saying, you have to compete. You have to want to go and compete. And if you get kicked, you need to get up and go again. I think there's a society of, of kids now that are... I don't want to say soft, but you just want to say, TV do get kicked in the game. Just be a wee bit robust. If you're feeling your legs a wee bit sore, that's fine. But do you know what? You're probably going to get kicked a lot in the games. Just get up and get on with it. But also overcome challenges that you may go through a wee, a wee rough patch. So <clears throat> you may get Osgoods or Severs because you're going through a growth spurt. How can you overcome that challenge and work your way through that to get back in with your support? You may find that your form's dipping a little bit. Maybe things aren't going quite right for you. How can you overcome that challenge? You might find that you're maybe not playing as much football in the team. Why is that? Can you overcome that wee challenge? So we, we've put some things in place in conjunction with a psychologist that we have a word of the month now. So, for example, one of them was around like improvement, challenge, growing your brain. And we would always come back to that and basically just say to the players, how are you going to grow your brain today in training? And they would tell me, so that's another way of kind of co cooperative learning at the start of the, the session. And then at the end of the session, we would ask them, how did you grow your brain? Or in the game, how did you grow your game, uh, brain today? So that takes away from the focus of this, focusing on the outcome goals. But I, I just love, it was a, a discussion I had with one of our coaches. That he's a, a sports scientist as well. And he was talking about the robustness of players from a physical standpoint, but also got me thinking about psychological aspects as well. And trying to say to the parents, development's not... It's not linear. It's not just going to go in a straight line. It's going to be up. It's going to be down. It's going to be peaks and troughs. You might find players that go that way for a long time and then all of a sudden they get hit by a challenge. How do they deal with that challenge? Um, and unfortunately, football is like that. Like in walks of life, Connor, you go for a job and you don't get the job. You need to be robust. How do you reflect and then become better at that? You may be sitting an exam and you don't pass it. How do you become more robust and resilient from that? But also, but when it comes to football, people sometimes say, oh, yeah, clubs let that player go or let, let that player go. And sometimes you say, well, maybe it was the right thing to do at that time for that player to maybe take a step back and go somewhere else. That it happens in all, it happens in all walks of life. So actually try to prepare them for that in football for what may happen to them in their everyday life. They're going to have to... A lad said this to me yesterday, actually, I thought was bang on. You're going to have to compete for things in life. You have to compete for things for jobs and these different types of things, getting into courses... What you want to do as a player, you need to have that robust approach. So probably two-pronged, physically robust, but also robust psychologically as well. Um, and again, that goes back to your environment. How do you create an environment that's going to foster that robustness as well? Um, especially after the pandemic, I'm seeing a lot of kids who, for the first six months, maybe even longer, um, playing games, the weather takes a turn and they want to come off because it's too cold, it's too rainy. I'm like, you live in Scotland, so you're going to have to go on with it. But they spent the last best part of two years indoors. And then they go outside and we're asking them to run, 
run 40 yards and press the ball, run another 20 yards and press the ball, and there's no effort there because they've just been not doing much recently. They've maybe been doing some one-to-one stuff, but actually having that physical challenge up against them. So we find that with our younger ones and just trying to get them to work a little bit harder. So, so yeah, um, probably looking at it from those two aspects of physically, psychologically being a wee bit more robust. Yes, and it's not only players that have to be robust and overcome these challenges and hurdles too. It's also coaches, uh, Willie. And what I've seen a shift in the past few years and something which I know you put on your LinkedIn and that sparked debate quite some time ago was was the debate whether should you have a certain coaching style or should you have a coaching strategy was adaptable and aligned with your environment around you. I mean, for me, over the years, what I've seen is you can be probably too fixated upon approach and negating what's in front of you, not you know, not being where your feet are on the ground. But what we're seeing nowadays is we're seeing young coach developers, young coach educators coming through as well from academies and whatnot into that first team level where they're able to deal with the variety of moves and tantrums you might be able to encounter across the entire spectrum. 100%. And I think having a strategy to adopt in these different scenarios, and that becomes down to your emotional intelligence, I think, as well, Connor. There was a, an example of it just yesterday in one of our games that um, something happened with a player and your instant reaction is to react one way. But actually, when you step back and you say, right, okay, let's look at who it is who done it, the context of what's happened, and maybe some things away from football that may be affecting this player. And all of a sudden, you adopt a different strategy of dealing with that player at that moment in time. Because if you maybe just have that one style, then it maybe wouldn't have been the right thing for that player at that point in time. But don't get me wrong, it'd be interesting if, if someone said, came along and watched your coach Connor and say, Connor's got a very unique style, or we can see his style of coaching, but how you can adapt to different scenarios. I think you have to do that, especially the higher up you go. Um, dealing with players, dealing with egos and dealing with different things. Guys, not they're not happy, they're in the team, out the team. Doesn't happen as much with the younger ones, but what you do have to deal with is with parents at the younger age groups as well. So different strategies that you, you put across to them as well. So I've often wondered, do people come and watch me and say, well, he's got a certain style <coughs> of, of how he coaches. And, and I hope they would, that there's certain things that maybe I'm positive, um, I'm well-organised, uh, maybe I give a, a degree of autonomy to the players. But the players then know if I'm not happy with certain things because I'll adopt a different way of approaching it in different scenarios. So it's a fascinating debate around coaching styles versus coaching strategies. If you'd have asked me a couple of years ago, I'd have probably said, yeah, I've got a certain coaching style. But I actually started to look into it a little bit more. I thought, do you know what? There is probably a... I've maybe got, if you want to call it, the guided discovery approach of setting something up, trying to guide the players with question and answers to a certain goal. But there'll be times where I'm quite direct. And I'll say, do you need to do this? Or there'll be times where I maybe step all the way back and give them full autonomy. So if you're looking across the spectrum of coaching styles, I've probably went through two or three different styles there. So that was me maybe adopting more of a strategic approach because of what happened in that certain situation. So if we have a player who's got an IDP of communication, for example, me to adopt a directive style isn't going to help him within a game. 
And I had I had a moment like that um, just before Christmas, where the coach in me saw the kid and thought he needs to move there and get closer. And I stopped myself and I actually said to him, "Tell me about this situation." It was a breaking play, and the kid looked about and said, "I need to get closer to him." And I says, "Okay, why would you do that?" Because I need to stop him from from getting the ball and getting turned. I says, "Okay, have a look about you." And he said, "I need to pull my full back in." And so he starts to then communicate. Whereas if I'd have just said to him, Davy, get closer to him, Paul, tuck in, then all of a sudden I've been quite directive in my style, but it wasn't right for their IDPs. And actually the referee in the game came up and spoke to me at the end of the game and said, I enjoyed listening to you coaching today more than I was the refereeing that I was doing. And I, th- I said to him, that's very nice of you, I really appreciate that, but I've been actively trying to do that more and more often. Um, in games and that sometimes links back to the individual that we're dealing with um, like yesterday our fullbacks <laughs> we're trying to get more aggressive on the press and our fullback and our wide left player um, they're too passive in how they, pre- how they press the game so spoke to them before the game about it first two opportunities I was on them about pressing and then after that I stepped off them and they weren't doing it so at half time I could then address that and say why is it taking for me to be on you to do that, you then need to take ownership. And then all of a sudden, they start doing it themselves within the game. Don't get wrong, they're kids. So they do it for 10 minutes, and then the next 20 minutes, they forget about it. So that maybe means I need to adopt a different strategy within that. So um, f- fascinating when you when you look into it. And some people will say, no, I've, this is my style. And, and, and fair play, if you're always going to be that coach who, and the knowledgeable one, you listen to me, absolutely fine. I don't also don't agree with, this is my personal opinion, of the game being the teacher. I think that's a bit of a cop-out that you can just let the kids go and play. They do need some sort of instruction at some point. That's what they're here to do. We're here to guide them. In. But I love the autonomy side of it. I like players, even when it comes to skill acquisition as well, Connor, the um, sort of ecological approach um, of skill acquisition, where the players can interact with their environment and the task constraint that they have to come up with better decisions rather than an ideal technique of executing something. And that is, the research shows you that it's a slower process for development, but it sticks for longer out the other end. So for me, I'm in a development phase. So that type of skill acquisition fits perfectly. Whereas if you're at first team level, it's about getting results and getting victories, then the coach may want to take more of a directive style. Um, Whereas I think the context that I'm sitting in, this is, the preferred strategy that I've got. So um, I'm, a, I'm in no way a, an expert on that at all. It's just some of the stuff that I've been thinking and found. Actually, the more and more I watch coaches, you probably do go through coaching strategies, Connor, without probably knowing that you're doing it. Yeah. But if I've got coaches who are constantly doing the same thing, then I'm maybe saying you need to step back a little bit there. That If you can't approach that and talk to that player in that way, because you're not going to get anything out of them, and you're going to have a disgruntled parent in your hand, it's maybe about saying, you know what, I maybe just bite my tongue a wee bit, adopt a different strategy, deal with that situation, and then it might be the next training session to say to him, Connor, the way that you acted in that situation, it can't happen again, rather than you going and nailing that guy, and then you end up blowing a big, a big out of proportion. So that again, maybe that comes with your expertise over the years of dealing with those situations. So it's um, 
Yeah, I do. I, more and more, I looked at it. I probably do adopt, adopt coaching strategies, but I do believe that I have a preferred style. But sometimes need to change it depending on the situation I'm in. Brilliant answer, and it's curiosity, I suppose, to these wide-ranging debates that we'll never really have ever a definitive answer on. Willie has probably set you, you know, set your mind to do the masters. I mean, what has it been like being back in the classroom this season with everything you have on your plate at the moment? It's been transformational, Connor, doing this this master. So I left school at 16, um, wanted to be a football player, and I've been in football, thank God, since then. And although I've not had any further or higher education courses, I've been through the, the youth licence, B licence, A licence, etc. I've, I've had a very good grounding in that sense. But it was during the lockdown and I thought, um, I really want to do something. Like, I, I genuinely, if I've got a bit of time here, <laughs> got enrolled onto it and excuse my language then kind of shit myself a little bit and went oh no I was like I'm, I'm going to go on this Zoom call and I'm going to be like Billy Madison I'm going to be the oldest guy in this class here with all the young guns who are bright as, as anything then I actually went in it and there was such a diverse group of people there was people older than me younger than me same age different sports different levels and actually when I took a step back the experience that I had was greater than probably 95% of the people on the course. So I thought, I really want to draw on my own experience, but now maybe I have a more critical, academic, theoretical lens to look through things. <clears throat> so I remember doing my, my very first um, module and having to write like a 2,000-word essay and like, how am I going to do this? Um, I'm used to writing session plans with stick men and little balls um, and, and I have to deal with the referencing and citations and things but quickly can I pick that up and then I realised that it, the way that they structured the course which was brilliant was about being able to link everything back to your context so it's not football specific it was about um, performance sport coaching but looking at the coaching process looking at coaching as learning the pedagogy of it planning, performance analysis, now on the, on the individual sort of planning, even creating engagement, uh, engaging sessions, which was another huge transformational moment for me about how important engagement is to initiate the learning process for players as well. So it really has, I mean, the last two years have just been exceptional, but there have been some things that I've looked at and went, sounds good in theory, but actually probably doesn't work because I'm just speaking from experience here, but there's things that I've saw and said, like a, in terms of kind of learning and how things are done in football, it would be called folk pedagogy, that this is how we've always done things in football. And actually went, oh, well, let's challenge that. Why, why are we doing that? And that's one of the things that I've, I've brought in about skill acquisition and challenged that folk pedagogy in football about what young players should be doing. So people always say, yeah, it's about learning technique. What does that mean? So technique, people seem to think it's like dribbling with the ball and running with the ball. Well, technique could be anything. Receiving the ball, releasing the ball, dribbling the ball, passing the ball, shooting the ball. Um, and how do you do that? Do you do that in isolation? Do you do that with opposition? For me, I want players to make decisions based on that. So if you're if you're practicing a, here's the ideal technique of passing the ball, plant your foot inside of the ball, pass it. But then you watch Luka Modric in the Champions League final who's playing passes with outside his foot. And, and you're saying, you would never teach that technique 
to our kid. So it's more about let's set up the situation. So let's set up a 1v1 with the opponent behind them and then saying, how can you escape from this situation? What move can you do? Now, if, if you're maybe doing a step over against a cone, here's what you would do. But all of a sudden, what would you do if you've got pressure on you and you're off balance? So that step over might become, it might look completely different. Or the pass might be a toe poke. So it's maybe about putting the kids in those different situations where they can show that variability um, and how they go and approach things as well. So it's allowed me to be a wee bit more critical of my own practice. And I'll tell you something, I've fallen out with myself about 100 times during the course because <clears throat> I've been like, this is really getting me thinking about what I've been doing. And even when I look at coach education, I've learned a lot from coach education, but nothing on away from the X's nose. So technical, tactical, brilliant, how to be set up, but not, nothing on the environment that I spoke about, nothing on building relationships with players, which is key. You spoke about it. It's, it's about social interactions with people. We're doing it just now. So trying to build a relationship, trying to talk about things. If we don't have that, this podcast, you might as well turn the podcast off. And that becomes the same with your players in terms of your development. If you don't build that social interaction between one or more people, then it starts to fall down. So actually looking at the, the theoretical side of it, and don't get me wrong, um, there's been bits where I've been doing the course and went, nah, not for me. Other bits have went, whoa, wow, that's for me. So like um, the planning part of it was really good in terms of how to build the game model. Um, even look at the analysis how about um, analysis can become such an important tool, but it can come such a, a deadly tool at the same time, if not used in the right way. But for me, skill acquisition, engagement and learning and environment creating and building relationships are like the five main things that I've taken from this and tried to put in a mean. I, I now feel that I'm actively doing that more often. So I'm building a better relationship with my players. I'm getting to know them a wee bit. I'm, we're beginning to create an autonomous environment where um, daft things like yesterday, the players lead the team talk or when they feed back in the team talk, they feed back as a group. So the midfield players feedback stuff, the defenders and goalkeeper feedback, the forward players feedback. They're involved in the process of their own IDPs as well. And it's generally an autonomous <coughs> environment that the players feel part of that. So see if they feel part of that, engagement is going to happen. And if you're engaged in something, you're going to learn. So I knew if I didn't engage in this course, I wouldn't learn anything from it. And that's kudos to the, the lecturers because they engage me. So it's like this here corner. If I came on and started talking, I probably am talking nonsense, but talking absolute nonsense, and you're not engaged in what I'm saying, you're probably saying, hey, time to wrap this up. And, and, and that goes the same for the players. Like get them engaged in what they want to do. Get them engaged in the learning it's ultimately, if you can prove to them, you're going to become a better person. You're going to become a better player for this. Here's why it's important rather than um, just box ticking, in my opinion. So, so yeah, I, I would thoroughly recommend um, going on these types of courses. I'm, I'm so glad that I did. Somebody asked me, do you wish you'd have done it when you were younger? <laughs> Probably not, because I think the experience that I've gained has helped me hugely going into this as well. Now, um, if someone had said to me, like getting a distinction or stuff like that on it doesn't really bother me. I, and getting a bit of paper doesn't bother me. I wanted to get it to become better. 
But my last few modules, basically if I hit something like a 68 or a 70% in my final one, I can get a distinction. So all of a sudden I'm going, two years ago, I thought I was going to be Billy Madison. Now I could be coming out this with a distinction and I'm fully engaged in this process. I'm, I'm burning the midnight oil up to two o'clock in the morning, doing these things, analysing data, knowing that is going to make me a, a, a better person. So that's got me engaged. And that's what I want me and my staff to try and do with the players. Because for me, and I put this in a post on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about relationships and environment. It's not rocket science. It genuinely isn't. And if somebody had to ask me what's the difference between us and other clubs, is that environment. Because I don't know what other clubs are doing, technically, tactically stuff, and they're probably doing some unreal stuff. But I want parents coming to Celtic or Junior Academy and saying, this is the place we want to be, it's the place we need to be. All the football stuff, that can come. That will come in time. Um, I've got coaches who are very, very good coaches about the technical, tactical, but they're even better people. They build relationships with, with kids and have a laugh and a joke with them. Like, this is an instant site, Connor, that I, I, seen, I seen a post somewhere and it was like, remember the kids you're coaching with? Some of them still go to bed sleeping with a teddy bear. And I was like, aye, you're right. And I remember last year during the lockdown, we had a Zoom call with the players and one of the lads is an under 13. And I said to him, oh, what have you been doing? He's like, oh, I've just been watching I'm watching Spider-Man today. I was like, oh, do you like the Marvel stuff? And he went, hi, do you? And I said, oh, I love Marvel. I said, my, Thor's my favourite character. And he said, oh, Spider-Man's my favourite character. And all of a sudden went on this mad spiel about Spider-Man, saying that he still gets Spider-Man figurines, he's got a Spider-Man computer game. He's just a wee guy. He's just a wee guy. And you forget about that. Um, and then you find a commonality with him. So I used to talk to him about Marvel and about Spider-Man at training, build that relationship with him so I could go more out of him as a, as a football player as well. So people have different ways and, and different, as I say, different strategies to approach that. But that's something that I've found in the last two years from this course that's really benefited me moving forward. You know what? We are going to wrap this up, but for all the right reasons. <laughs> Um, I'd have to say, certainly, Willie, it's been one of the most illuminating, thought-provoking and equally insightful episodes I've recorded to date. We've touched upon subjects, to be honest, that I believe and I hope I will do in the future, dedicate full-length episodes towards. Maybe you'll be back on again for round two. But um, before we close, what we always like to do is ask the guest for their one bit of advice for anyone that wishes to embark upon a similar journey as themselves. Always be inquisitive. Always ask questions and always learn. It's as simple as that. If you stop being inquisitive and stop learning, then you won't go any further in the game. There's a piece of advice that I was given really early on, and I would say that as well. So ask questions. Nothing's a daft question. Be inquisitive. Think of new ways to evolve as well in the game. Um, but also be true to yourself. Be your own person. Um, don't try to emulate anybody. Um, there'll be people that you'll look towards that, you like what they do, but I'll always say try and be your own person, but obviously have role models, but have an open mind about everything. Um, as soon as you have that closed mind, then you'll find it hard. So probably four or five pieces of advice in there, but be inquisitive and always look to learn. Plenty to get to work on. Willie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. No problem, Colin. Thank you very much.